So I have a question. Actually, I have a bunch of questions, and they're not actually questions for you. Um, they are questions for God. I have just a lot of things that I like to ask him. I've come to where when I, when I read my Bible and my Bible app, if you don't scroll through it, you would see all these verses highlighted in blue. If I just highlight it in yellow, that means I just think it's significant. If it's in blue, that means I have a comment that I put underneath. And my comments are often actually just questions. I'm like, huh, I wonder about this. And I write the question, so then next time I read it, I take a look, and maybe the next time through I get it, or maybe I can answer it, or maybe I solve the question. You know, I have lots of them, and I know that many of you do too, and at Abiding Shepherd, we love to encourage you to ask questions. After every worship service, we give you the opportunity to do that. Asking questions is a good thing when it comes to God. Our lesson today is not going to answer every one of those questions that is out there. It may even actually speak to a question that you have not asked out loud or thought too much through, but it's going to address some questions that can kind of be at the core of us and in our hearts. Maybe we haven't even really wanted to deal with them, but they've been kind of lingering there. So the lesson is going to prompt us to bring those questions out so we can embrace the incredibly life-giving and refreshing answers that Jesus gives us. When we look at him and we say, okay, Jesus, this is what's on my heart. Well, where are you going to speak to it? The lesson we have, it's John chapter 4, and we have verse 9 and then 19 to 20. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And then jumping to verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. For verse 9, you can see the question. Verses 19 to 20, it's not a direct question, but there's a question underneath what's said there. We'll get into that in just a bit. So with our lesson today, we move forward from or in the life of Jesus. And last week, we were in this kind of really interesting encounter between Jesus and this man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of night, which right away indicates to you that there, there's something, you know, really significant, but also maybe a little bit scary going on here, because he's this religious leader, and Jesus is really calling out the religious establishment, and so it's somewhat dangerous for Nicodemus to go to Jesus, but he does go to Jesus because he recognizes that no one could do these miracles that Jesus is doing unless, unless he's from God. So he goes to Jesus, does this courageous thing, and then Jesus teaches him about what it is to have new life from God, to be born again by the power of the Spirit, giving you faith in Jesus and, and giving you this new life. That was in John chapter 3. We just bump ahead now today to John chapter 4, where we're going to see another interesting encounter take place. See, Jesus and his disciples, they were traveling, and they were going from the area of Jerusalem, and they were going to head up to Galilee, and in doing so, they traveled through a region called Samaria, and they had come to a well outside of a city called Sakar. and it's the middle of the day, hot part of the day, Jesus sits down by the well as his disciples head into town to get food, and it's at that point that this woman comes out to the well. It's not the typical time you'd come out to a well, but nevertheless, she comes out to this well where Jesus is. And as she comes out to the well, Jesus asks her, asks her to give him some water. So it's after Jesus asked that question that we get into our lesson, our verses that we, we have here today. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. 
how can you ask me for a drink? Now, part of what's going on here is just you don't have that same level of like men and women interacting to the same level in that day as you do today. But even more than that, there's a bigger detail here. Because it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Like maybe you have a relationship like this in your life where you know that there's some baggage or there's some backstory that goes on to this. And if you know it, you can see why there's this rub. There's a major rub between Jews and Samaritans that we're going to do some, some historical review here a bit so we can get a good understanding of why there is this hostility. Some of the backstory we've actually talked about recently in some lessons Maybe you remember that God, when he established the Old Testament nation of Israel, they were to have this special calling to be set apart to be God's people and that the Savior of the world was going to come through these people. But the people didn't embrace so much being set apart. Solomon even had, King Solomon had turned away from God in a pretty drastic way and then his son was super arrogant. And so then the kingdom actually divided into two. And you have a southern kingdom of Judah and a northern kingdom of Israel And then this area of Samaria is in the northern kingdom of Israel, where Jerusalem, the Jews, would be in the southern kingdom of Judah. So right there, you've got a division, you have hostility. But then it just continues to ramp up because the northern kingdom of Israel right away really embraced worshiping false gods and doing a lot of terrible stuff. And so you have that distinction as well. But then to go on top of it, because they kept turning away from God and worshiping these false gods, God eventually said, for that northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, if you don't turn from your ways, I'm going to hand you over to these other nations and they're going to conquer you. And eventually that happens. The Assyrians come in and they conquer a whole bunch of nations, including the northern kingdom of Israel and that area of Samaria. And then what they do when they conquer them is they actually deport most of the citizens to different areas. This was a military strategy in that day. You would take and you would deport people and spread them out and then bring other people in to re-inhabit where they lived. And the idea is that if you spread them out, you kind of dilute them so that they lose national identity, national power. They're less likely to rebel if they're not all, like, grouped together. So the idea is that they are purposely mixing together backgrounds, cultures, and religions to kind of dilute them. So what you end up having then in the area of Samaria is a really mi- unique mix of culture but then also mixed religions coming together, which again then puts them in opposition to the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, the southern kingdom of Judah, too, they turn away from God in many ways. So eventually God says, okay, I'm going to hand you over, and you're going to get conquered by a nation. Babylon comes in, conquers the southern kingdom of Judah, but because God keeps his promise to bring a savior through this nation, after 70 years, he starts bringing them back, and they rebuild the city and the temple. But when they do, this whole Samaritan issue rises up again because some from Samaria came down. They wanted to have a part in the temple, but apparently there was something sinister behind what they were doing. So the Jews there said, no, like, we need to do this. And so when they rejected the Samaritans there, then the Samaritans actually worked to stop the building of the temple. And then when they tried to rebuild the city walls, the Samaritans tried to stop that, and they mocked what was going on there. And so you have this major hostility going. And then there's one another kind of step on top of that is after all this happens, there's this event that, that really leads to, so today when you hear about Jewish people celebrating Hanukkah, um, it has to do with the Greeks coming in and, and really desecrating the temple in Jerusalem and doing all kinds of terrible stuff. Well, 
during that time, there had been a temple built in Samaria since they didn't have one. It was kind of one in opposition to the one that was in Jerusalem. And when the Greeks came in, and there's this whole big fight going on there, the Greeks said, well, let's just call this temple the Temple of Zeus. And apparently the word on the street at the time was that the Samarians were like, Samaritans were like, fine, call it the Temple of Zeus. Like, we don't care. And so it ended up being this like mixture of like embracing, well, like, we can embrace Zeus and the biblical God and so on, which again, for the people who were Jews in the southern kingdom, were like, this is ridiculous. There's this big hostility. And so what you see here between the Jews and the Gentiles, or Jews and the Samaritans, is not just like years or centuries, but literally, or not just years or decades, but literally centuries of repeated hostility and issues. And so she sees Jesus, and she's like, how can you ask me for a drink? We don't do this. For centuries, Jews and Samaritans do not talk. We don't do things together. Which leads us to our first question for us to consider today. And if you're a note taker, this is the time to get your worship folder out and grab a pencil or a pen. And uh, maybe I'll give a quick explanation to the graphics that are in your worship folder. I have a rope there because if you were to get water out of a well, you would have to use a rope and lower the bucket down. All right? By asking this, these questions, we're going to lower our bucket down and get some water out of this well. Okay? So here's the first question to ask of Jesus that sometimes is in our hearts. is Would you come to a person like me? For this woman, would you come to a Samaritan like me? Now, we don't have a Jew-Samaritan situation going on here, but we do all have a backstory and a background, and it could be possible that for some of you, maybe the way you grew up, maybe you're like, okay, would you come to someone who comes from my family, somebody who has my background? Jesus, would you really come to me? Or maybe it's not so much a family thing, but we all have different ways that we kind of categorize ourselves. You know, like I'm an intellectual, I'm a blue-collar person, I'm a, you know, I'm a a social person, I'm an extrovert, I'm an introvert, I'm a whatever. Would you come, Jesus, to someone who is like me? Who works the way I do? Like, maybe you look and you see other people, like, they have this gift. Like, okay, I can see why God would go to them, but what about me? I don't have that same gift, that same skill set. Maybe you're someone who didn't grow up in church, and you're like, I don't know, I haven't been, I don't, haven't been through all this church stuff I don't know any of this history this guy's talking about today. Like, Jesus, would you come to me? Or to flip it the other way, sometimes I hear, and I've heard this a number of times from people here at Abiding Shepherd, where there's almost a jealousy of those who were brought to faith in Jesus later in life because people say, you know, those people who were, became Christians later, they, they know what it was like to not be a Christian, and it seems like they value it more or they're more passionate. Whereas for me, I was baptized as a baby and I've always been a Christian, and so I don't have that same fire they do. Like, maybe you're like, okay, God, would you really come and come to me because I don't have the fire that they do. Wherever it is, whatever your, maybe your personal category or your backstory, this first question to ask, would you come to someone like me? Well, Jesus, would you? But there's more to the question that we can ask, too, or maybe a second question, I should say. Because part of this conversation, Jesus, he goes on, and there's this interesting question he asks her. He says, or I should say maybe a direction he gives her. 
go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. This woman's got a rough, a rough story, a rough backstory, which would be good for us to lean into a bit when you think about what her life experience has been. Remember, this is a time period where it's a bit different than today. Today, men and women can fairly equally initiate relationships and also fairly equally um, cause separation, file for divorce, and so on. This is a very male-dominated time, meaning that the one who who would typically initiate, male, but also who would issue a certificate of divorce, male. Which means, for her to be in this situation, she has had five men initiate a relationship with her, seeing something in her that they value, that they think looks good, promise to be faithful to her, only then to break it off and send her away. Which means this woman has had a repeated experience of people who were supposed to love her, not. And it's likely at this point where she maybe is struggling with feelings like, am I even lovable? You know, with what I've experienced. I've been here and now I've been cast away. I've been here, I've been cast away. Now, there may be some things that she did also to contribute to these situations. Perhaps she has not been faithful to her husbands. That could very well be true. And so maybe on, on, on top of this too, so there's what she's experienced, there's what's happened to her, but there also could be this guilt and the shame of what she's done. Maybe she's been unfaithful. Maybe she has gone other directions. We don't know all the de- details. We don't know the prompts to why she's had all these relationships like this. But the way humanity tends to be and the way we tend to be either way, to be in a situation like this, it's probably messy. Things being done to her and then things that maybe she also has done herself. And so the next question, not just would you come to a person like me, but would you come to a person who has done what I've done or struggled like I've struggled or you could also add experienced what I've experienced. Sometimes, you know, we have more dirt on us than anybody else does, right? And you know that thing that just bothers and sits on your conscience and your heart. And sometimes you can wonder, God, would you come to someone who's done that? Or maybe you have this thing that you've struggled with and you thought you would stop struggling with it by now and you still struggle with it and you feel, you feel terribly embarrassed if anybody would have any idea that you struggle with this and so then you wonder, God, would you come to someone, Jesus, would you come to someone who struggles like I struggle? Or maybe, in, and like I said, it's not printed here, but you can add it if you want. What about what you've experienced? You know, nobody else has shown faithful love to me. Would you do it? You know, all these relationships here fall apart. Would my relationship with you fall apart? Would you come and be faithful? Would you come to me when my experience tells me that people don't? Well, Jesus, would you? There's some other questions, too, that can flow from the second part of our our lesson today, verses 19 to 20 where she doesn't ask a direct question, but there's a question hidden in this. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
So, like I mentioned before, there's this temple that was built in that Samaritan area, and it was kind of in opposition to Jerusalem. So there's a Jerusalem temple, and there's where the Samaritans worship. There's also the reality, too, that early on in the history of God's people, a lot of great stuff happened in the area of Samaria. So she's wondering, like, okay, a lot of great stuff happened here. My ancestors worshiped here, but you Jews, so you have to worship there. With that statement, there's this kind of question, like, what's the deal? Like, what's going on here? But before we think more about that question, it would be good for us to keep in mind what it is that's going on here, what some of this backstory is. Remember that the people, the Samaritans, when they rebuilt the temple, when they came down to Jerusalem, apparently there was something off with what they were trying to do. And so the Jews there said, no, you can't be part of this. And so initially it started apparently with some bad motives, which resulted in some separation. On the flip side, it also apparently started by some people who were there in Jerusalem really wanting to have the temple be what it's supposed to be. They had good motives. We've got we to keep the temple pure. We've got to do the right thing here. Which is significant because sometimes what causes the most space between people and God actually started with good intentions. You know, like, sometimes as we are, are seeking to protect the truth of God, which we should, sometimes what's happened over the years is sometimes churches have become so hostile to each other or to those who don't share that same truth. Or maybe you've had that in your personal life where you've worked really hard to speak the truth, but then we've lacked the in love part of it. So in an attempt to speak the truth, we drive people away. Or maybe you've been driven away because someone who has come down too harsh in a way that isn't loving, can get in the way. Sometimes there's, there's traditions, there's different rules that churches have come up with that, that keep people at arm's length. Or there's kind of a flip side that can happen sometimes today. Is sometimes today, Christians, in an attempt to reach people for Jesus, will change what Jesus has said in order to try to reach people for Jesus. But that ends up not actually bringing people closer to Jesus. You know, if you have to change God's word and change the message of Jesus to try to reach people for Jesus, you're not actually reaching people for Jesus. There could be a number of things that start as good intentions, but it actually ends up leaving us further away and causing us space. And so some questions that can flow out of this is, why is there such a distance? If you feel far from God, or if you know people that are at a distance from God, Why? Why is there such a distance? Is there something off or wrong with this? You know, if you're in that situation, ask. Is there something off with this? Is there something wrong with this? And if there is, what can be done about it? If I feel far from God, if I feel far from you, Jesus, if I know people who are far from you, Jesus, is there something off about this situation and what can be done? Why is there such a distance? Is something off or wrong with this? What can be done? Well, Jesus, what would you speak to this? Let's look at some of the things that Jesus does speak to this. We're told that Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, who it is, excuse me, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He recognizes that she is thirsty for something, likely in her Life with her story, she likely was thirsty for love, for happiness, 
for contentment, to belong, right? For someone to be there. And Jesus says, I have living water that truly satisfies, that satisfies in a way that nothing else can. Jesus also said in verse 23, he said, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. There won't be any of this, well, you got to be here on this mountain or you got to be on that mountain. All that stuff that has separated people and kept you at a distance, not anymore. That's going to be overcome. It's not, not going to be about this mountain, that mountain, whatever. It's going to be about the spirit. It's going to be about truth. And then he also, in verse 25, when she said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus says, I'm the Christ. The one who was promised from all those years, the one who's going to be the one who rescues the world. That declaration in and of itself is amazing, but also, especially at this point in John, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is super hesitant to call himself Christ because there's a lot of misconceptions at this point about what that means. And so, for him to just straight up say, I am he, is a really big gift to this woman. He's really hesitant to claim that title around most people, but for her, for some reason, he says, I'm he. I'm the one you're talking about. And then she gets the privilege of going into Sakaar and telling the entire town she becomes the mouthpiece that Jesus is the Christ. How can he say these things? I'm going to give you living water. There's going to be a time coming where all this nonsense is going away. And yes, in fact, I'm the Christ. Go ahead and tell people. How does he do that? Well, he does that because he... Well, he is the Christ, and what did he come to do for us? He came to live the life that we were created to live. But then go to a cross so that all of those things that have separated us from God, those things that we have done wrong, where we have gone our own way, those things where we do recognize we have that guilt and that shame that weighs on us, those things that, that lead us away from the God who gives us life and towards death and separation from him, all those things that have kept us from God, Jesus said, I'm going to take those things on myself for you. So all the guilt that they deserve, he carried. All the justice, because when something wrong has been done, there's got to be justice. All the justice he paid, he absorbed it on himself when he died there on the cross. And then he rose again to give you life again with him. So that not only those things that you have done or struggled with could be defeated in God's eyes, but even to all those things that have happened to you, that you've experienced, Jesus' death shows you that they do not have the final word. They are not the last part of the story. There is resurrection. There is new life. They do not win. You have life with him, and nothing can separate you from him today or for eternity. By the power of the Spirit giving you faith in him, when the Spirit gives you faith in him, you have new life. You can be satisfied. And you don't have to live at a distance separated in this way. You can actually have him here with you now. And you can be part, you can partner with him in sharing the same hope with others too. I mean, look, look at what, what Jesus would say. If we say to him, well, Jesus, what would you speak to all this? Jesus would say, I came for a person like 
you. What do we draw up out of this well? What kind of water? Jesus would say, I came for someone like you. If you're like, yeah, Jesus, but I've been here. This is my story. He says, mm-hmm, you. I came for you. Jesus would say, I came knowing what you've done, and I know your struggle, and I know your experience. He is not surprised by it. He's not like, oh, my bad. I didn't realize. The whole reason he came was to go to the cross for exactly whatever it is that you've done, struggled with, or has happened to you. He went to the cross for you. If you feel far off and distant, Jesus would say, I am not far off. I came all the way to the cross for you. He would say that by the power of the Spirit, I'm here with you. He makes a promise that when you take the Lord's Supper today, that bread and wine, remember, it's also his body and his blood. I'm right here that close to you. I am not far off. I am right here with you. I've made you right with me. And I'm setting all things right. Right now, through faith in Christ, you are right with God. You are forgiven. You are free. And everything is going to be set right. Things might feel wrong and might feel distant, but he's setting all things right. He says, I've won. And as a result, you will overcome. Nothing can separate you from him. Jesus has defeated what separated you from him. And there might be things in this world, in your life, you might struggle with, it might feel like it would put you at a distance from him. He says, I've won, and you're going to overcome that. You're going to have life with me forever. And, like the Samaritan woman who got to run into town and tell everybody about it, you are part of overcoming now. You get to partner with God. You can go and tell. If you see somebody who's sitting far off, you can let them know that he is not far off. Jesus is close, closer than you ever expected. You let that person know that, like, if they feel like, really, for me, where I've been with what I've said about him or wherever I've struggled, for you, someone like you, knowing exactly what you've experienced, he's right there with you. What about all this stuff that's going on that separates spirit and truth? Jesus overcomes. He's right there with you. He knows you. He came for you. He's right here. He has won. You were overcome. You will overcome. He says all this whenever we look at him and we're like, Jesus, what would you say to this? Well, that's what he says.